The only thing we can be sure of about the future is that it will be absolutely fantastic. Five, four, three, two, one. Hello, and welcome to Into the Impossible, a podcast about how we imagine and how what we imagine shapes what we do. From the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UC San Diego. I'm Patrick Coleman, and today we're bringing you a special bonus episode with our associate director, Brian Keating, speaking to the beloved creator of PhD Comics, Jorge Cham, and the UC Irvine physicist, Daniel Whiteson, about their new book, We Have No Idea, A Guide to the Unknown Universe. It has a mix of Cham's witty illustrations and accessible writing to guide us into the aspects of the cosmos that our science still isn't able to pin down. A fantastic and really enjoyable way to stretch the imagination. Cham and Whiteson will be joining us at the Clark Center on May 8th, along with USC physicist Clifford Johnson, who wrote and illustrated the graphic nonfiction book, The Dialogues, Conversations About the Nature of the Universe, published by MIT Press. It'll be an evening of graphic science, so if you're in the area, please do come check it out. Visit our website, imagination.ucsd.edu, for more details, and uh, sign up for the mailing list while you're there to stay in the loop on our upcoming programs and research. Now let's go to our conversation with Jorge Cham and Daniel Whiteson. So tell me, where are you guys right now? Uh, so I'm speaking with Jorge Cham and Daniel Whiteson, authors of the fantastic, but this is going to become a collector's item soon because this is the hardcover. Oh, yes. And we at the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination are delighted to be hosting an event on May 8th, 2018, which is the launch of your paperback. So anyway, very excited. What are you guys up to? And we're going to talk a lot about the book. Um, I know you guys are pressed for time. You're doing a bunch of media tours, but tell me what's going on. What brings you guys to, to New York City? Yeah, we're here uh, this week to we give a talk at the Na- American Museum of Natural History yesterday at the uh, Hayden Planetarium. Oh, very nice. Fun. And but we then, did not meet Neil deGrasse Tyson. We did not meet Neil, although we walked past his office. We did, yes. And we left a cartoon for him. That's right. Oh, you did? Uh, <laughs> that's the closest we got. That's the closest we got. Uh, yeah, any closer, it costs you a lot of money. It costs you a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. We don't have the budget to get any closer. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and we had to do it after hours. I think That's if you doing regular working hours, it's more. Huh. Uh, but then we're also doing a Pi Day event at, uh, at with Atlas Obscura, which is a great kind of science outreach um, event organization. Okay. So yeah, that's why we're in New York. Oh, very and cool. We talk at uh, Columbia also. They have a science series there called um, Science on the Hudson. Uh, so oh, nice. One of these great um, science communities they've built. In traveling around, we found that a lot of places have really done the work over the years to build a community of people in the public interested in science. Mm-hmm. And when you build that community with a series of lectures, then it, it, they can be really responsive. And uh, places where they haven't done that yet, it's much harder to reach the people who are interested in this kind of stuff because the community just hasn't formed. Great examples yeah. are like Ann Arbor, Saturday morning physics lectures. They, we had like hundreds and hundreds of people show up on a Saturday morning, freezing yeah. cold, to talk about <laughs> physics. So, yeah, so it's great when these local communities come together, you know, yeah. just get excited about science and learning about new books and stuff. Yeah, but yeah. It's, it's the hard work of the local organizers who spent all that time building these communities and these networks, and uh, it's, it's impressive. So we, yeah. we just use them to 
couple of books though. So. <laughs> well, you're going to be, uh, you'll be uh, having an opportunity to shill the paperback when you're here because you, you just described exactly what we do here at, uh, at the Arthur C. Clarke Center. So we have, uh, you know, lectures, we have this podcast, which is the only uh, one of the few podcasts within the University of California that I'm aware of. And we have uh, public lectures and, and events where we bring in scientists, science fiction authors. We've had uh, Sir Roger Penrose was just here a month ago. Uh, Freeman Dyson, I just did an interview with him. So we're going to uh, we're gonna bring together some of those in the conversation that we have today. And then when you're here on May 8th, um, to, for the uh, book wonderful. signing. Yeah, looking forward to that. We're it's looking for a wonderful, looking forward to a wonderful event. So I want to talk to you guys first about your day jobs and then, you know, we'll get into the writing and the collaborative process that you guys have, have, um, have turned out so well, really a unique book um, in many ways. I mean, there have been books written about, about science by, you know, by, you know, comic art authors and there have been science books written by scientists with no, you know, with dry illustrations. Uh, but, you know, rarely has it been, you know, where two scientists have gotten together and done a work of creative, you know, graphic art the way that this is. And I wanted to, you know, first get a, get a background uh, on the two of you individually. So, so Jorge, you're originally from Panama, which I believe is, is correct. Are you guys still there? Yep, that's right. I was born and raised in Panama, um, and then I studied robotics here in the U.S. All right, you got your Ph.D. from uh, Stanford. Yeah. yeah. That's right, uh, Stanford. And uh, But then what happened was, while I was getting my Ph.D. in robotics, I started drawing comics. I, I started drawing something called Ph.D. comics, about higher mm-hmm. and deeper. And, uh, yes, yeah, so I sort of kept going the academic track. The comics kind of became more... Uh, popular than the research I was doing and so that's what I do now full time is uh, just draw comics and do writing and work on different projects and as I understood it the comic sort of took off virally you weren't trying to sell it or market it or anything originally it just spread by word of mouth around campuses uh, uh, what do you think yeah. made it so appealing to, to your fellow students you must have been speaking the truth <laughs> Well, I think that's the yeah, the power of, of a good comic strip is you know it, it kind of uh, portrays the truth or truths that you know are maybe um, people aren't sort of open to talk about openly. Um, and so I think yeah, I think that's what people connected to is this idea that here is somebody writing about the academic process, but in a maybe slightly irreverent way or in a way that was kind of um, uh, funny, you know, adding humor to academia where. I think was not a necessarily a, a, a natural combination. Making fun of professors. Mostly. Making fun. <laughs> yeah. So I'm gonna get to that in a second, Daniel. Don't worry. But uh, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's kind of you capture in the in the strip. I mean, sometimes I've I've even heard you compare yourself to you know Scott Adams, Dilbert. But in, in a way, I mean, yours is uh, it's very highbrow in a sense, and it's very existentially uh, sometimes full of of the dread and ennui that, that students, and I remember, you know, what it was like to be a grad uh-huh. student, but I mean, I have to ask, was your grad student experience, you know, anything like that, which you depict with a character that resembles <laughs> you sometimes? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, there's definitely, I think uh, the, the core of the strip is sort of that question is like, why would uh, a really intelligent, rational person pursue an academic career? You know, it's not yeah. necessarily the most high, highest paid job out there. And, there's mm-hmm. a lot of struggle, a lot of um, you know uh, challenges, in, in terms of um, in terms of coming up with ideas and making ideas work, and and there's kind of a, this big 
built-in uncertainty. You know, you never know if the science you're working on is going to pay off or you never know if the project you're working on is actually going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's what people uh, got attracted to. And uh, definitely it was my experience, um, you know, kind of going into grad school. I thought I was pretty smart, but then now you're suddenly in a pool of, of really, really extra smart people. And so, you know, just kind of going through that ego check and uh, going through that kind of um, realization of your limits, really. Yeah. Uh, and also just kind of the, the kind of funny dynamics that happen in, in, in academia, um, I think, are um, what made the strip relatable to people. And what do you find? Is it more? Um, is it more challenging? I mean, the, the the thing that I remember most about you know all the academic levels, starting from undergraduate to graduate to postdoc to assistant professor, you keep your social cohort kind of decreases, you know, exponentially at each level. And I wonder, you know, are you working nowadays in isolation? Are you? I mean, besides the collaboration with Daniel, are you? Are, do you mainly work by yourself? And if so, how do how do you? Uh, how do you handle those kind of, you know, different different environments as opposed to grad school where you've got at least a lot of people are suffering around you? <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I think, you know, there's people around in grad school, but it's still a very isolating experience, you know. It's like it's you and your advisor and really nobody else in the world knows what you're working on at a specific level and what kind of uh, – uh, um, certain things are in your project, and um, so I think it, I think academia is even though you're surrounded by people, you, it's still a very kind of isolating experience. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and it, it, there's a lot of parallels with cartooning. You know, I still work in my pajamas mostly <laughs> uh, late yeah. in, late at night and things like that. So I enforce a strict no pajamas rule in the lab, but um, <laughs> so Daniel, oh, I mean, you're no fun. Yeah, we could commiserate about, you know, what it was like to be a graduate student. But but I think it might be interesting to get, I mean, what about Jorge's uh, comics in the movie uh, in which the um, com- oh, what, what the um, movie on which the comic, well, sorry, the comic strip on which the movie was based on. Uh, and I, I understand there's a second, second version of that. Um, so what is it like being on this other side of the desk? You know, kind of Jorge always depicts, you know, the grad student and then the wise, you know, bearded, white hair. So you don't have the white hair. You've got the white sun. You don't have the white hair. The nice beard. But the beard, though. Yeah, that beard has grown since I've met him. I'm a 10 years last year, yeah. So, yeah, with with tenure comes, you know, massive uh, hairceutical privileges. Um <laughs> So, Daniel, what's it like for those, you know, the uninitiated, what's it like to be a real professor as you are? I think it's the best job in the world, honestly. I mean, I just get to think about questions that are interesting to me. Um, mostly I think about the questions and then spin them off to my students and grads and, and postdocs um, who take them and actually run with them and execute them. Um, I think it's a lot of fun. It's, uh, it's great freedom, great intellectual freedom. Um, nobody's telling me what to do every day, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I get to goof off on side projects if I want, like this fantastic collaboration with Jorge. So right. I had no idea when I was in grad school, when I was an undergrad, what being a professor was like, but I'm pretty glad I went down this road because it's, uh, it's, it's, in my view, it's the best job in the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, both of you guys, I think what, what is a, a hallmark for both of you uh, fellows is that you're both great star- storytellers. I, I've, I've had the opportunity to 
see Daniel live and in person, and we're looking forward to your event here on May 8th. Uh, and I've seen Jorge, I've seen your TED talk and, and, and so forth. What, what about that commonality? I mean, do you think, I mean, no, mostly Daniel professors are depicted as, you know, pretty dry, boring, you know, erudite, but intellectually yet, you know, un, unintelligible. How, how do you, I mean, did you, did you take any training? Is there anything that you did in your career, you know, to accentuate the extroverted aspect of your personality? Because, I mean, we both know not every, every professor may share the, the delightful things that we enjoy about academia, but they're not all as good at pointing out to the public, uh, it's such an, um, uh, elucidated, you know, in such an easy fashion as you are. What, what, you know, what do you attribute that to? I think it takes a lot of practice, honestly. And I think people don't recognize that. And you're right. As professors, we don't get much training or practice. Um, but when I was in high school, I did a lot of debating and extemporaneous speaking where you have to like, uh, be sharp witted and on your feet, and especially, um, there's a kind of debate called parliamentary debate where there's a lot of um, zingers back and forth and you're interrupting each other and, uh, and um, you know, some witticisms, et cetera, and you get really the crowd riled up and stuff. It's a genre of debate. Oh, yeah, and the crowd boos and pisses. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's modeled after the British Parliament. With actually the Parliament, yeah. They yell at each other and you have to come up with clever things to defend yourself. I did a lot of that in college. Nowadays um, in, in the U.S., we just do that on Twitter, right? The, the government just doesn't Yeah, or live, <laughs> live TV, yeah. <laughs> live TV, that's right. So, so I'm so actually, you, yeah. personally, I'm much more of an introvert, um, mm -hmm. but, but I've practiced a lot to, to try to be a, an engaging speaker and to, to try to have fun up there and, and to relax. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, big, big mm -hmm. go ahead. Point, yeah. You know, I really struggled with public speaking, but a big turning point for me was, um, you know, I was a TA in a class and I was co-teaching a class and my other um, co-teacher said that um, to really look at how stand-up comedians do it. You know, just in terms of how they um, engage with the public, how they hold themselves, and then just how they tell us, they're able to tell a story, like a long discourse, but also with interesting kind of asides and things like that. Uh, and then, but mostly just like how to have fun up there, you know? And, and so uh, for me, like studying stand up comics and, and seeing how, you know, just, just make it fun and just make it yeah. sort of like having a conversation. But also, you know, you, you also kind of have to really start to it really well in your head. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, just mostly go up there and have fun. Is, is, I yeah. think, is, uh, That's funny. Before I, I had a chance to do a TEDx talk about four years ago. And before I did it, I did a TED, I did a comedy store, um, two minute, three minute long stand up comedy routine here in La Jolla. <laughs> Maybe we'll uh -huh. take you guys there for the after hour show on May 8th. Uh, but when you did the comic stand-up routine, I, yeah, I did a three minute. Yeah, I did a three minute thing. And I said, you know, I said, if I'm going to bomb in front of, you know, the whole world on Ted, I want to bomb first in front of, you know, a couple hundred drunk people. So, so I did that. And <laughs> I actually prefer the, the stand-up comedy, you know, club to, to, you know, to most lecture halls. I mean, for one thing, there's a two drink minimum and that was really nice to have, you know, most of my, <laughs> yeah. most of my students only come in with one drink. You know, so. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, usually they only drink one drink before they come to class. And then <laughs> <laughs> or 50 the night before. <laughs> and I started, you know, to develop you know, new insights into pedagogy, you know, with, uh, I, I, from now on, I, I decided that I'm only going to have a bouncer in each one of my lectures, you know, in case, you know, <laughs> sure no, no Facebooking and tweeting of, of your comics. Um, so uh, speaking of comics, one, one thing I think, you know, Jorge, you speak a lot of truth in your, as I said, you know, there's a lot of truth in ennui and 
an existential dread in your comics. But I think, you know, if you were to do that in another form, the way that you do it in a comic form, I think it robs it of some of the pain and actually gives it, gives it the ring. I mean, add to the ring of truth. And I'm wondering, did that always resonate with you? I mean, you could have been an artist, um, you know, depicting in, in more realistic form. I've seen, you know, very detailed, you know, scientific drawings that you've made. Um, and, you know, so what, what about the comic format that appeals to you most? Um, I just think it's magic. You know, I kind of grew up early on in my childhood. I was exposed to a lot of comic strips, a lot of comic books and a lot of comic um, collections. And so I just think the whole thing is really magic, you know, the way um, you can, like you say, you can kind of pass up a little bit of truth, but also um, kind of mask it in these characters and make it sort of lighthearted. Um, I just think there's a certain magic, uh, magic to that. Mm-hmm. And people also are really accepting of it. They're like, they're happy to read a comic and to absorb something from it. It's not an intimidating form of communication for whatever reason. They associate it with childhood or with goofy superheroes or something, but their, their inhibitions, their barriers are let down when they're reading comics. Yeah. Um, which is mm-hmm. one thing, reason I thought it would be a good fit for communicating science because there are a lot of very understandable ideas. But when you start telling people, I'm going to tell you some physics, they immediately start thinking, I'm not going to understand. So, <laughs> I hated Shut physics. My brain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if you could just get around that, mm-hmm. yeah, make people feel like, don't worry, you're going to get it. Just stick with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, that's a big part of the hurdle in communicating physics. To people. Did it yeah. simplify things that Jorge had, had a technical for you, Daniel? I mean, explaining science and, and actually Jorge, you've done comics about explaining science to the public and kind of this, you know, I call it this, um, you know, instead of the military industrial complex, it's kind of the academia, academia and journalism, you know, complex <laughs> where everything has to be really hyped up to, it has to be, you know, huge major breakthrough in the treatment of toe fungus, you know, and that has to go viral. And then of course, you know, my, my pet. It always has to be a, make you healthier or something, right? It right. To, or, or, you know, major find a conscience. the world. Right. Or, or, yeah. Or, you know, so was it work when you were working with Jorge, Daniel, like, was it easy? I mean, was it easier that he had such a strong technical background as opposed to, you know, most illustrators you, you had a probably would have had to probably explain a lot more to. And did that liberate the creative bandwidth for you guys to work together that, you know, that Jorge had such a strong technical background? Oh, I think it was essential. Yeah. Um, one thing that I noticed very early on was that he just never stopped asking questions until he actually understood. I think part of that was he imagined it was possible to understand and he wanted to penetrate through all the layers of jargon, like actually explain simply. And uh, the first time we hung out, we spent like four or five or six hours talking about, uh, about one topic in science. He just recorded the whole thing. If you go back and listen to it, you can see there's times when he's like just pressing me and pressing me and pressing me. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what makes it part of it, what makes it successful is that we really make a connection all the way down to those accessible ideas. And that was part of the process of our book is that I would start and write something which I thought was accessible and I thought was interesting and I thought had the right take on it. And he'd be like, no, I don't get it. Or let's, you know, I don't get this first bit in this first paragraph, this first page, <laughs> explain that more. And that was great. Because then like, you know, for example, we were talking about gravity and, you know, I dot, 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 this stuff about space. And he's like, well, what do you mean? Okay, let's talk about that more. And that whole conversation turned into a chapter about space. Mm-hmm. And later I realized that's a great idea. Let's just have yeah. a whole chapter. What is space? It's a really simple, basic question and fascinating. Yeah. So a lot of that came out. Finally found of a 
you finally found a, a professor, Jorge, who had to answer your questions. Who <laughs> 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 would see you He's outside of the office? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's in, um, I've, heard him, uh, I've heard him do this with other people, too. There's this uh, recording he has of a time he was on the bus with um, the Higgs convener of Atlas, Elam Gross. And he's asking him questions. And he's like, explain to me, what is symmetry? And Elam is struggling. And this is Elon Gross. He's like, he's a good scientist. <laughs> yeah. a right. And he's a good speaker. And he's like struggling to find the words. And he says things in that, in that clip. He's like, uh, you make me invent these words because you ask me these questions. And um, that's what I think a good science journalist should do. Like actually insist that things be explained. Uh, mm -hmm. I think a lot of science journalism falls short of that standard. Yeah, um, absolutely. Possible, partly because Jorge had a technical background. Yeah. So, also, they probably have a deadline and, and can't afford to spend four hours talking to a physicist. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you've got you got mouths to feed. Like, uh, um, unemployed cartoonists all the time in the world. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, a tenured professor, right? Um. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think I had tenure at the time when we started, actually. Oh, really? Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. No, so we, that was up, I was still an assistant professor. Yeah. That was a big oh, risk wow. for you. Ooh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. Everything on the line. Yeah. Wow. And now, uh, now you've. Uh, <laughs> Had I known, <laughs> <laughs> you would have gotten. I would have cared less. You <laughs> would have charged more. Because <laughs> <laughs> right. didn't you find Jorge? Didn't you basically commission him to explain as you felt these lacunae in the discussion of the Higgs boson in the early part of this decade? Is that correct, Daniel? That you basically just blind pitched Jorge out of the blue and, and tried to commission him to, to work on an explainer for the Higgs boson? Yeah, I just uh, cold emailed him. I mean, I've been a fan for years, and my wife has been a fan. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, I read a different technical comic. It was a comic about the development of the Chrome browser done by Scott McCloud. And like, I'm not that into Chrome, the, the how to write a browser. But this comic did a good job of making it interesting, like mm -hmm. to somebody who's in totally different field. So I thought, well, if they can do that for like developing a browser, or like, what's the big question there? What's the pull the hook, right? There's nothing then right. comics can do it for physics, where I think there's a lot of big hooks. But I didn't have the artistic skills myself, and so I was like, well, I'll just email a celebrity and see if he writes back. Right. Um, I'm old, uh, um, cartoonists do write back when you offer them money. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tried that with Banksy, but he didn't write back. Oh, yeah. Um, do you have his email address? Do you, just, do you just write it on walls around town? Or how do you get in touch with him? I wish. Uh, so speaking of art, Jorge, one thing we explore down here in San Diego at the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination is whether or not creativity, imagination, artistry can be taught. And, um, and I'm curious, both of you guys, but first, Jorge, could you teach someone to be a good artist? Can you teach, if you just took somebody like me who has no artistic skills, I mean, could, could you actually, could you, could you do it? Could you make me into a Jorge Chan? <laughs> Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> At least you're honest. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know if you can teach somebody to be an artist, but I think you can definitely, um, you know, compel them to practice a lot. And so I would say that, um, yeah, I would say it's mostly about practice and doing it uh, a lot. And, uh, and but, but more importantly, having kind of that perspective of being, uh, open and self-critical and, and just having that uh, internal desire to sort of learn the craft and, and, and know what, 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 what it takes, what, how to recognize what people respond to. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. So I'm not quite sure that it's something you can like uh, really teach, but you can definitely like compel people or give them an opportunity to do it a lot. One of, one of the biggest advice I give people is is like commit yourself to doing it to somebody. Uh, like so, you have a deadline, so you have a, a reason, so you feel bad if you don't make the deadline, <laughs> kind of thing. So for me, like I, I think the only reason I really kept doing it was because I was I was doing it for this student newspaper. And they were actually like paying me a few bucks, so mm -hmm. uh, and there was a deadline, so I just had to keep keep churning it out, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think if I didn't have that deadline, I would probably just never never really produce anything. And so then that that gets you to the habit, and then that gets you to really practice a lot. Mm -hmm. I know deadlines are important to Jorge because he only always turns stuff in immediately before the deadline. It's Which gives me maximum time to work on it, oh, right? Yeah. Technically, it's if you for the think creative about process. it. Yes. <laughs> uh, Daniel, can you teach somebody to be a great physicist? Teach someone to be a great physicist? Yeah, can uh, you teach I hope them? so. Yeah, can you I teach someone so. to be? I'm doing it with all my grad students right now. <laughs> and how do you do it? What's your, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what would you do? I mean, are there things that you could do to ensure the creativity? Because, I mean, a lot of being a scientist is being creative and being inventive. Yeah. Being an artist, even though, you know, like you said, we don't really get ever get training on how to teach. We don't get training on how to do research. So how do you, you know, it's mostly taught from advisor to advisee. So how, how do you inculcate that curiosity, the, the, the creativity in your students? It's a great question. I think about that a lot because most of my students are members of the Atlas Collaboration, which means we're in a 5,000 person uh, collaboration where a lot of things have been done for you. And mm -hmm. a lot of things have been done, almost everything's been done already. And if you're not careful, your students can just fall into a rut, repeating something somebody has done before and uh, not really learning anything. So in my group, I make a lot of particular strides to avoid that. And one thing I do is we have this exercise every six months, and we call it the crazy ideas meeting, where everybody has to come in with at least one or two ideas for a new experiment. Like, think of a question you want answered about the universe and then propose an experiment, no limitations on cost or practicality or whatever, you know, galaxy colliders and this kind of crazy stuff. And then we think about it, we take it, we say, well, okay, how would you do that? Uh, how much would it cost? Would it actually work? Um, and some of my students take to this right away and they come in with great ideas. And actually our cosmic ray smartphone um, app came out of that meeting where we, somebody suggested this idea and we thought about it, well, could we make that work? Let's think it through and do the calculations. And we couldn't demonstrate to ourselves that it wouldn't work. So we decided, let's actually try to do it. Mm -hmm. And other times people had crazy ideas like, let's use the Atlas um, instrumented area as a um, direct detection experiment. Like we have mm -hmm. a bunch of protons in there. And what if and there's, if there's a wimp wind, maybe they'll interact. We'll see them. And so we did the calculations. But the point is uh, that we I have to specifically poke them and prod them. And some students never take to it. They feel very really uncomfortable and they show up and they have no ideas and they um, never suggest anything. So mm -hmm. I think some students are just not good at it. Other students mm -hmm. can learn. If you poke mm -hmm. them and insist, then they, they become um, they become good. They, they, I think you can learn to, to think broadly and, and relax your mind, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I know you guys are on a, on a tight deadline today. Um, so I have a couple of questions to finish up with. So one is, is, is one that I wondered if you could, you know, if you Sorry. could pay, it's okay. If you could pay, you know, God or your favorite spirit or, you know, whatever to answer one of the questions, one of the chapters, except for chapter 13, 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what, which which one would each one of you both both like you know most like to know the answer to? Uh, you mean um, questions from the book? Yeah, which would you like to have an idea? And uh, we have no idea. The chapters are all uh, very, very provocatively titled. Things like who is shooting particles at the earth? Uh, uh, what is time? What is space? Um, what is gravity? Uh, and I'm wondering, you know, if you, got a, if you could get an audience with your, you know, the creator, if you believe in such an entity or just, you know, um, uh, get the answer, you know, sent in an email to you. What, what would you most, of all these questions, of all these great questions, uh, which one would you most like to get the answer to? Uh, what's God's email address? <laughs> it's bad. At everything. Dot all. Banksy at. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I've already sort of chosen because I decided to dedicate my life to particle physics and um, you know, breaking down matter into smaller and smaller pieces. And, you know, it's, it's sort of stereotypical or it's a trite story, but I really have been wondering about that question since I was a kid. Like, what is everything made out of? What is the smallest particle? So to me, it's a really, it's the kind of question which if you knew the answer would change the way you felt about the universe. Like, is there a smallest thing or do the, does it go on forever with smaller and smaller particles? I would love, desperately love to actually know the answer to that question. And it kills me that there is an answer. Right, there is a factual answer, and it's out there. It, it determined. We just don't know it. One day, humans might know it. It's the kind of thing that makes me want to like freeze my head for five thousand <laughs> years, so I can be resuscitated in five thousand years when we keep learn the, the answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, keep right. the beard. Um, and you know, that's possible. You could conceivably do that. You could fast forward your way through scientific progress to the future and learn the answer to one of these questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a little bit tempting to me sometimes. Absolutely. Well, and um, I think for me, the, my, the question I would want to answer is, um, it's kind of a tie between are we alone in the universe? So we have a chapter in the book that kind of talks about the, um, how people think about the question of whether there are other intelligent uh, beings in the, in the universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one, and also there's a chapter we have about how big is the universe. Mm-hmm. And um, just a question like, is the universe infinitely big or does it have kind of an edge to it or does it curve around on itself? So I think, um, I think if um, those are the two questions I would love to have answered. And then the last thing, you guys sort of epitomize this, you know, there's always this um, a dichotomy that's spoken about in popular circles, you know, the, the left brain and the right brain. And I can never remember which brain I am, you know, uh, and that probably means I'm one of the brains, but, uh, <laughs> but I can't, I can't recall which one. But, but, <laughs> that's right. Bird brain. Yeah. My mom named me brain, you know, only because it was an anagram for Brian, hoping it would get me some extra IQ points. <laughs> um, but, uh, but do you, do you see the arts and the, and, and science, you know, as, as reconcilable in the sense that, you know, can art, influence science can science influence art we we have a great many of our patron saint if you will arthur c clark is is of course you know the great science scientist and a great writer author um what do you see as the future of these two cultures i mean do you think they're destined to to sort of meld together more or or you know do you think the the most fruitful avenue is perhaps some sort of union of the two as you guys have have begun to to initiate Ooh, uh, i have some th- thoughts about that um, I think that, uh, I don't think a union is what's necessary. I think there's a sort of a happy ecosystem where they support each other. And I think science fiction, for example, drives science in a lot of ways. 
Uh, I view science fiction writers as sort of like proto-theorists. Like, mm-hmm. you know, here's the kind of world I'd like to imagine. Could we do this? Maybe the world works in this way. Right. And there's lots of examples where ideas started in science fiction and then came actually directly to science. And then the other way, you know, we discover something crazy in science and then there's a bunch of uh, science fiction about it. You know, like how many books are there now about like AI takeovers and this kind of right. stuff? We definitely influence each other. Um, and, and on the literary side and on the artistic side, I mean, I think one of the great sources of artistic inspiration is just the sheer beauty of the universe. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're an astrophysics person, like look at the incredible beauty of the universe. And you have to wonder like, did it have to be that way? Mm-hmm. Could we have been humans that evolved that thought the universe was ugly? Could mm-hmm. somebody look at these galaxies and say, yuck, what a mess, right? right? right. Or look at the Grand Canyon and think like, oh, I wish this was just smooth and featureless. Right. Is, is it something about being human? Is it something about the universe itself? I think a lot of these scientific discoveries inspire artistic reactions. And also, in, in science, um, artistic and aesthetic preferences guide us. If you talk to theorists in particle physics, they say, this theory is beautiful, that theory is ugly. Right? Right. They prefer theories that have some sort of structure to them that they, they aesthetically like. And right. it's those tools and their aesthetic choices about how they think the universe should work that often guides the research we do. So exactly. they can't yeah. yeah, you mentioned in the book, Dirac, you know, Dirac was guided, you know, he said you should be guided by finding, you know, it's more important your equations are beautiful than that they're right. Yeah. Yeah. He also yeah, exactly. had a lot of a lot of negative things to say about poets and and art. <laughs> I think I think he was a deeply closeted poet. And uh, oh, is that right? I've, I've come out on record about that. Yeah, he wanted to be a poet so badly that when he failed at it, he, you know, his consolation prize was the Nobel Prize. But but it's still never uh, unrequited verse. Literature, not physics. That's right. That's right. He wanted it in literature. All right, guys. Good. Jorge, do you have any final thoughts about the melding of cultures or do you find inspiration from science or do you feel like science can be inspired by art or both? Um, well, I think that there's definitely, uh, they have different goals, you know, the goal of science is very different than the goal of art. Um, mm-hmm. you know, at the core, it's about truth, I think, but, um, maybe one is more objective truth and the other one is subjective truth. Um, but I think, yeah, I agree with Daniel. I think there's a lot of overlap in terms of inspiration and imagination and, um, yeah, just kind of, um, personal inspiration to, to do it. And, um, but yeah, at the end, though, it, I think there is sort of there are there are different they have different goals, but there's definitely a lot of kind of uh, areas in between, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, guys, thank you so much. I know you're super busy today. I want to thank you, uh, Jorge Cham and Daniel Whiteson, authors of "We Have No Idea," the last hardcover version. I'm going to get you guys to sign it when you're here on May 8th, and Looking we're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate the release of uh, "We Have No Idea" in paperback. And then uh, talk about what's coming next. I, I want to see and find out the future of you guys. Is there a, we have no idea, two, T-O-O, or is there number two? So we'll see. We'll yeah. be excited to find website. out. I was going to mention the website in case anyone's interested. It's oh, yeah. wehavenoidea.com. Mm-hmm. So just wehavenoidea.com. And uh, actually, we do have a project coming up, which is a podcast. We're launching a podcast to talk about a lot of the things we didn't get to talk about in the book and other stuff. And uh, oh, wow. it's a very humble name to it. It's called Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe. <laughs> Mostly us talking about science and yucking it up. And so um, I hope your listeners will be interested. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll uh, certainly promote that through our, our podcast. We welcome the competition. We're not scared of anything here. You know? uh, looking Great, forward to that. Grow the pie. <laughs> That's right. Grow the uh, pie of what we have no idea about. Thank you guys so much. This has been Into the Impossible, a podcast of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at UC San Diego. We'd like to thank our guests, Jorge Cham and Daniel Whiteson, as well as to acknowledge our generous patrons and supporters, including Viasat Inc., members of the Founders Orbit, and the James B. Axe Family Foundation. Your support is much appreciated. To find out more about the Clark Center and other exciting projects, research, and programs, as well as how to support our mission, please visit imagination.ucsd.edu. Audio production is by me, Patrick Coleman, produced by Patrick Coleman and Brian Keating. Thanks, everyone. The only thing we can be sure of about the future is that it will be absolutely fantastic. Five, four, three.